Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. I trust that you have been putting into practice the truths you've been studying from the Word. Today, I'm going to discuss a, a topic that came out of a Sunday school discussion that happened this past week or two in Sunday school. And I think it's a, a really good example of practical holiness. And the question, the question arose in Sunday school, whom should I marry? Or what are the qualifications for marriage? How do you know who God wants you to marry? And I think it's a, it's a really good question. It's a very legitimate question. It's a question a lot of people are, are searching for the answer to. And the question came out of the Sunday school class because we were discussing the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, which if you've never read it, I highly recommend. It's, it's one of the top five or ten books that I've ever read as a Christian. And so I think every Christian should benefit from this particular book. In the latter part of the book, Dr. Sproul talks about how you can practice holiness in your personal life. And, and of course, the purpose of practicing holiness is to imitate the holy God who saved us and whom we are obligated to serve. In light of that, he was using the verse out of Romans, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to talk about thinking in a way that honors God, Okay thinking and acting in a way that honors God. So what does Romans 12, 1 and 2 say? Now, let's take a look here. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so as we were discussing this verse, I was making the point that doing the will of God for the Christian involves obedience to the commands of God. It doesn't involve, as many Christians think, finding the right answers to specific questions. In other words, doing the will of God is not finding the right career or the specific career that you are supposed to do. Doing the will of God is not about finding that specific person you are supposed to marry or that specific house in which you are to live, or, you know, a number of other situations like that. We tend to think as Americans that doing the will of God is about getting all the answers right. And God is concerned about that. God is concerned about getting the answers right. But the, the answers that God cares about are a little bit different than the answers that we care about. Does God want you to do well in a job? Absolutely. God wants you to do your best, to provide for your family, to work hard, and to use the skills and talents that he has given you to the best of your ability. What does that look like for you? Well, I don't know. And maybe it looks different for you at different points of your life, depending on what the needs are at the moment. What is important is to do the will of God in your career means that you're going to work hard, you're going to utilize or try to utilize your full potential, and when you're at work, you're going to live according to biblical truths so that you are salt and light to those who are around you, that you're different. 
Now, think about this in terms of marriage, okay? Marriage is a big deal because as Christians, we believe that marriage is for life. When you marry somebody, you're married to them for life. And people want to know, who am I supposed to marry? I got to get this right because this is a decision that really impacts the rest of my life. And, and you're correct. It does impact the rest of your life. It is an important decision to make. It's very critical as you think through who should I marry that you marry someone that you are compatible with for your whole life. The difference here in what I'm thinking about and what I think a lot of Christians are thinking about, just in general Christians are thinking about, is I'm thinking about, okay, God's word says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Other Christians are thinking, other people, and they're well-meaning. I'm not trying to put anybody down. I don't think anybody's, you know, sinning in how they're thinking. They're thinking, who is the right person for me? Who's compatible for me? Who will complement me well? And who has the right character, the right maturity, the right communication skills, the right life philosophy? Like, who has all of these things so that I can make a good choice? None of those things are wrong. But let's start at the same place, okay? What is the will of God for Christians in marriage? What is the will of God for Christians in marriage? If you are a Christian, the will of God for you is that you marry another Christian. You marry only in the Lord. You see, 1 Corinthians 7.39 says this, all right? A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband has fallen asleep, that means if her husband has died, then she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. That little phrase, only in the Lord, qualifies whom she can marry. She can marry whomever she wishes, but it has to be somebody who is of like faith to her, somebody who is also a believer in Jesus Christ. Then, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul again addresses the question of marriage And he says this, and I don't think the context, in this particular context, Paul is not specifically like, here are the prerequisites for marriage. But Paul is giving a general principle which expresses the will of God and by which Christians should obey if they are going to prove what the will of God is. You see the connection there? In the New Testament, there are statements that are made by the apostles, by God himself, Jesus, and those statements communicate what God expects those who are believers to do. And believers will prove what the will of God is by thinking according to the scriptures and then acting according to the scriptures. So when Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that means when it comes to marriage, you're not going to be thinking in the same way that the unbeliever thinks about marriage. You're going to have a different set of standards, a different set of priorities. You're going to think according to the transformed mind, the renewed mind. And as you think according to the renewed mind, you will prove what the will of God is, and you'll prove it by marrying somebody who is a Christian. Okay, so the unbelieving world is looking for all kinds of different things, all kinds of different qualities in somebody to marry. What is God's baseline quality? Well, here it is in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14. 
do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what test what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Okay? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. The baseline for marriage as a Christian is, is the other person a Christian? Now, there's a lot that we could say about personality, compatibility, character, maturity, life philosophy, communication skills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think those are all important aspects of figuring out maybe who you want to marry. However, those aren't the things that God emphasizes. God emphasizes if you're a believer, you marry another believer. Why is this? Okay, why is this? Well, let's take a look all the way back at the beginning as and answer this question. Why did God design marriage? God designed marriage to be a blessing to the man and the woman and to be a foundation for society and to be the means through which children were brought into the world and are raised up in the world. And the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, they come together from two different families and they are joined together in what is known as the one flesh union, which is physical, emotional, and spiritual in nature. And in that one flesh union, they, they begin to do life together. Like throughout, out of that one flesh union, they begin to do life together. And what happens? Well, what happens in marriage? You have a lot of decisions to make. You face a lot of different situations in life that require you to look at and examine different directions and paths forward. You have a number of different elements that will attack your marriage. And what is, what is the foundation for the relationship? Okay. Many unbelievers uh, think that attractiveness or the feeling of love or the feeling of security those are the things that undergird the relationship. But when those go or fade, um, what, what keeps that relationship going? Well, nothing. They don't have anything to point to, really. I mean, maybe it's more convenient to stay married than it is to break up the marriage, and that's why they stay married. But what is the real foundation of that? And, and this is why the instructions for Christians are marry in the Lord. Why? First of all, if you marry in the Lord, you are marrying somebody who worships the same God that you do, Jesus Christ the Lord. And the worship of the God that you serve impacts how you live and how you think. This is why in the Old Testament, for example, Jews were prohibited from marrying peoples of other nations. They were not allowed to marry foreigners unless that foreigner had converted to um, basically following the Old Testament law. If they were a true believer, then they could be married. You could marry them. But you were prohibited from marrying the women from other nations because multiple times in the Old Testament, God says, the wife that you have will turn your heart away from serving the true and living God. This happened to King Solomon. 
It happened to other kings in the nation of Israel. It happened individually in, in like the, I would just say like the regular class of person. So we're, we don't, we're not even talking about the kings anymore or the nobility of the nation, but just the regular class of people when they married foreigners, those foreigners brought their gods into the household and it impacted how thinking was done in the household. It impacted the choices that were made in the household. All of a sudden, there was a competition of gods to see whose ideas were the correct ideas and whose ways we would follow. So the first reason that you should marry a Christian is that you worship the same God, and that impacts how you think and how you live. The second reason why you should marry a Christian is that you're both indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you are both united in the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. This means that the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. It has the ability to convict your heart of sin, to convict your heart of wrongdoing. It also has the ability to help you um, connect on a deeper level because there's a spiritual connection that is the same in this particular situation. It also means that you are united in the body of Christ. And so when you worship the same God, and because you're indwelt by the same Spirit, oftentimes, or in many cases, in ideally in every case, but in many cases, the couple joins a local church, and they are united in the body of Christ there in the local church, and the body of Christ comes alongside the married couple to help them through when there are challenges and difficulties, to meet their needs when there are great needs that need to be met, to encourage them in raising children and persevering through the difficult and hard times of, of parenting. So there is a great fellowship that occurs on the spiritual level because you are indwelt by the same Spirit, and that same Spirit unites you together in the body of Christ. A third reason, then, to marry a Christian is that you both have agreed that the manual for life is the objective, authoritative Word of God. Now, this is critically important because when you're studying your Bible regularly, okay, when you're in the Word of God, it reveals sin to you. Why? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. When you read the Word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life reveals sin to you. And so you can grow, and you can change, and you can put off ungodly habits and put on godly habits because you're following the same manual for life. It's a great equalizer. It really is. The Bible is a great equalizer because it speaks to both members of the marriage equally. It doesn't have anything more to say to husbands than it does to wives, and it doesn't have anything more to say to wives than it does to husbands. It communicates very plainly the responsibilities, the functions, the roles, the expectations that God requires of those who have claimed to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So what is the effect of this? the baseline effect of this, you're like, well, of course I know I should marry a Christian. Of course I know that. Well, the, the baseline effect of this is that you could have two baby Christians get married and have a wonderful life together that brings glory to God. 
I'm talking about baby Christians, like people who have been only believers for a few weeks to a few months. If two people who are baby, baby Christians, quote unquote, baby Christians, get married and they commit to following the Bible and being part of a local church fellowship and keeping Jesus as the first priority in their life, they will grow together in Christ-likeness, and they will see great maturity, and they can have a great life together. You know, another example would be, and I know this is not very popular today, but arranged marriages. If you had an arranged marriage involving two believers, you could, those two people, despite the fact that they've never seen each other before, they've never met before, they don't really know anything about each other, those two people could have a great life together. Why? Again, because they are committed to following the same manual for life, the Bible. They are committed then to be part of the body of Christ, which will support and encourage them. They have the same indwelling spirit, which will convict them of sin. And ultimately, they worship the same God, and they're going to be submissive to that God, Jesus. And as they do that, that will really, um, as they do that, that will really transform the way that they live together. Now, another example, you could have two Christians who, let's say that they sin, let's say that they commit fornication, and they end up getting pregnant, and, and you're like, well, that just doesn't seem like the right thing to do to make them get married. Well, they've already created the one flesh union. They've already gone that far. It might be the best thing for them to get married. Why? If they're two Christians, if they're truly Christians, okay, it can't be like, well, he may be a Christian, or she might be a Christian, or she at least has a testimony of faith. No, if they're tr- two Christians who are real believers, and the evidence of faith is there in their life, and they, they sin, all right, and the evidence of their sin is plain, let's say a baby, let's say a pregnancy, they should get married, and they can have a great life together. They can have a wonderful life, even a relationship that starts in sin can result in great glory to God and blessings to the couple if they, again, follow the manual of life, the Bible, if they commit to the local fellowship of the church, and if they commit to keeping the worship of Jesus as the central component to their relationship they can, have, they can have a fantastic testimony and bring gl- great glory to God out of their sin. Now, that's not to excuse their sin. That's not to say that there's not going to be consequences for their sin. That's absolutely true. God can bring consequences on people, on Christians, and he does. He chastises us when we sin against him. These are all situations that I think if we were just like stepping back we would be like, boy, these seem like less than ideal situations. All right, two baby Christians, two Christians getting married because they got pregnant together, two Christians who are married together out of an arranged marriage, those seem like, those seem like um, less than ideal circumstances. Yes, they are, okay? But the fact of the matter is, if they are marrying in the Lord, then that is a marriage that God can bless, and that is a marriage that can be a fantastic example and testimony of God's transforming grace if the people who are married, the two people, if the husband and wife who are married, will commit to doing the three things that I mentioned. Now, what do people usually look for when it comes to answering the question, whom should I marry? What do the people usually look for? I want you to notice what I didn't mention. 
I didn't mention looks. I didn't mention attractiveness, physical fitness. I didn't mention personality or compatibility. I didn't mention, you know, how does this person make me feel? Do they give me the warm fuzzies? Um, those are the kinds of things that people usually look for in a marriage partner. And I'm not saying that those things are incorrect. I'm not saying that, you know, you shouldn't be attracted to the person that you want to marry or that the person shouldn't have a personality that you enjoy being around or compatibility um, in terms of like philosophy of life and like what kind of things you enjoy doing together or even separate. I'm not saying that those things are unimportant. But what I'm saying is Christians today tend to focus on these kinds of things, personality and compatibility, how the person makes me feel and attractiveness. All right. That's what we tend to focus on. We don't focus on the bigger issue. Is the person a Christian? Do they have a deep love for Jesus? Is that love for Jesus evident in their life? And if so, can we both commit together as a married couple to worshiping Jesus, being in a local church fellowship, and following the manual of life, the Bible? If we can do those three things, some of these other things aren't as important. You can have two very different personalities, have a very successful relationship. In fact, one of my one of my co-pastors and his wife could not have more opposite personalities, but they've been married. They will have been married for, I think it's 48 years, maybe 49 years this year. And you would, if you talk to them individually, be like, wow, those two don't seem like they're compatible, but they are compatible because the first three things are true. They worship the same God. They worship in a body of believers that cares for them and supports them. And they follow the same manual for life. So personality is overcomable. Compatibility of philosophy of life, those things are overcomable. Why? Because those things bend to the manual for life. Those things take a second place seat to the manual for life, to worshiping the same God, Jesus Christ. Attractiveness. All right, let's get right to it. You're like, I don't want to marry somebody who's not attractive to me. Well, you know what? People who serve Jesus with their life and who are sold out to honor and obey him are attractive in a way that people who just have a mere physical attraction are not. Think about that. You know it to be true. People who serve Jesus first, who worship Jesus above all else, who live their lives for Jesus, even if they are not the most physically attractive person, they become attractive because of these other character qualities. And the fact of the matter is attractiveness is going to change. It is the attractiveness, physical attractiveness, is the most transient aspect of marriage. I mean, we have a lot of couples in our church who, are, who have been married 45 plus years. And some that have been married 55 years, some I think a couple that have been married 60 years. If you look at the pictures of them, all right, on their wedding day, you're like, wow, I never knew that they looked that way, you know? And now if you look at them, you know, in their 70s, you're like, well, they, you know, they look like grandma and grandpa. Well, attractiveness fades over time. And I'm not saying that these couples aren't handsome or good looking because they, they are in their own way. But what you need to understand is attractiveness is, in, is a culturally measured standard that changes by generation to generation. And attractiveness comes and goes in marriage. I mean, 
women's bodies especially change a lot, especially when you start having children and you go through that process of gaining weight, having children, losing weight afterwards. Maybe there are hormonal things that cause you to not be able to lose weight. There's a lot of things that could affect attractiveness. And so that's not the most important thing. But in our culture, attractiveness is an extremely important thing. And there are a lot of Christians who who place attractiveness as, as a very high bar. Like, this is the bar that I want to have somebody jump over before I'm even considering dating them. That's not, that's not biblical. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's like sinful, but I'm saying you have the wrong standard. The baseline for marrying within God's will is marrying a Christian. Okay. And, and I'm not saying you have to marry somebody who you find unattractive either. There's a lot of nuance here, but you have to remember there are first tier qualities and there are second tier qualities. And attractiveness is definitely in the second tier qualities. Now, if we are going to if we are going to look at advanced pastoral advice, all right, I'm just going to call it advanced pastoral advice. I think that there are some times where there are two Christians, okay, who even though the baseline is marry a Christian, I believe that there are times where there are two Christians who maybe should not get married or marry one another, the person that they selected, for a variety of reasons. And this is, this is my pastoral advice, okay? And there are other pastors who may have different pastoral advice. There may be other Christian people in the, these people's, the couple's lives that are giving them different advice. But there are some times where I've had to say to a couple, you know, I just don't, I know that you can get married because you're both Christians, but I'm not sure that it's wise for you to marry this person. I've had to say that. And I feel like if somebody has asked me, like if a couple asks me, I believe that it's my responsibility to share honestly with them. Do I think they can get married? Yes. If they choose to get married, am I going to support them? 100%. But if they're saying, Pastor, do you think it's right for us to get married at this time? There may be times where I say, no, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And what would be the, the, the reasons that I would make that, that determination or that decision? Well, I tend to look at character and maturity as being the two biggest factors that would would show me whether two people should be married or not. Character and maturity. You know, the Bible places a high degree of emphasis on excellent character. The fruits of the Spirit are all character virtues. The qualifications for an elder, except one, are all character qualifications. The qualifications for deacons are all character in nature. And so the, the New Testament places a high emphasis on somebody who has put off ungodly habits and is putting on godly habits. This doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you've arrived, but it means that you're in the process of having a, a high level of character, a high level of Christ-like character. So that would be one thing that I would look at. Maturity might be another thing. I know some people are, some people are more mature at 19 years old than others are. Some 19-year-olds could use a couple more years of just experiencing life before they get married. Some might not be, okay? Some people do really good at communication skills, and some people don't. Some people have very different life philosophies, all right? These are some of the things that are kind of like advanced pastoral advice that I would look at and say, maybe if these things aren't present 
it might not be the best time for you to get married. And then I'm going to, I'm really going to blow your mind with this bit of nuance because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you burn with passion for the other person, then you should probably get married, okay? If you burn with passion, then get married and and have the moments of passion in your marriage rather than fornicating, okay? Ex- experience that sexual enjoyment in marriage rather than fornicating. Now, if that's your if your baseline reason for marrying is like this person's Christian and I'm really attracted to them and I don't think that I can restrain myself physically and I want to get married, I'll marry you. I may not agree with it, but I will marry you because I can't fault that biblical logic. I think what you should take away from this is, is that there's a lot more reasons to say yes to marrying a Christian than there are to say no to marrying a Christian. And one of the challenges that I think we've run into in the Western church, like the the evangelical church in America, is that we have created a, like I just said, I gave you that advanced pastoral advice. We have created a list of qualifications for somebody to to meet in order for us to pursue them in a relationship that probably is maybe too strict or maybe beyond what might be reasonable. And, and I'm not saying that it's not good to have those kind of qualifications. But I'm saying there might be people in their mid-20s or late 20s or even early 30s who have passed up very good opportunities to get married and to start living a married life for the Lord. There are people who have passed up those opportunities because their advanced criteria were too strict. I just think about it. You know, just think about it. That's that's really something to think about. Is my advanced criteria too strict? And and I listen, I come from doing many, many years of youth ministry where I really hammered the teenagers on character matters. Pick people to date who have high character. Set high standards. And I don't think it's wrong to set high standards. I think it's good, but I think it can be paralyzing to some degree. So all of this has to be weighed out in the balance. And again, rolling all the way back to the first point, how do you prove what the will of God is? By doing that which is good and perfect and acceptable. What is acceptable in God's eyes when it comes to marriage? Marrying somebody who is a believer. Marrying somebody who is a believer. And then once you marry them, now you're on the hook, right? You're on the hook to, if you're a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and to live with her in an understanding way. If you're a wife, you're on the hook to submit to your husband and to follow his leadership. That's what you're on the hook for. So so then, again, the Word of God then begins to shape your character and to challenge your presuppositions and to really transform your thinking about the relationship that you have. If you ask any of the married couples who have been married for 40-plus years, even some who have been married for 15 or 20 or 30 years, ask them, hey, are you the same person today that you were when you got married back then? Be like, no, no, I'm not. You know, I've been transformed by the word of God. I'm, I'm a totally different person and I've grown together with my spouse. Why? Because we follow the same manual for life. We have the same fellowship of believers that we go, that we assemble with. And uh, that helps us to have accountability and encouragement. And finally, we worship the same God, Jesus. He's the master. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. Well, I, I hope that this um, 
kind of provides some a really like interesting train of thought for you in, in terms of answering this question, whom should I marry? The answer is easy and hard at the same time. And I, I think that we would all do well to think through this very, very clearly and make sure that we're, we're on the same page in terms of what does the Bible require for Christians when it comes to marriage? And what doesn't the Bible require? And then what are those things that are really nice to have and make your marriage a little bit smoother out of the get-go, but, you know, aren't exactly necessary when it comes to saying, I do. Well, thank you for your time and attention today. I pray that God's blessings will be upon you as you consider these truths and as you seek to put them into practice in your life.